I wish I could just sit here and meditate for an hour, but... (laughs) Sometimes when you sit down, doesn't it just feel so good? The tranquility just comes. Anyway, tonight I want to talk to you all about... Well, I'll let you guess what I'm going to talk about. I'll read something. Picture the crowded screen in front of a harried air traffic controller. Picture the chaos in the room and the jumble of planes on the screen. Now imagine that your unresolved grievances are the planes on that screen that have been circling for days and weeks on end. Most of the other planes have landed, but your unresolved grievances continue to take up precious airspace draining resources that may be needed for an emergency. Having them on the screen forces you to work harder and increases the chances for an accident. The grievance planes become a source of stress and burnout is often the result. An ax to grind, a bone to pick, a chip on your shoulder. I think we all know what that feeling is like. The idea of being somehow the target or the victim of an injustice. Having someone disrespect us and hurt us. And the just sense of resentment and anger and helplessness that can be the byproduct of that. It could last moments, it could last days, weeks, years, decades. I'm sure all of us enlightened meditators, we've forgiven all of our past harms, right? (laughs) so I want to talk about forgiveness forgiveness what do we do with that just all of these things that we're carrying around all of these planes in the air that are just circling and circling and circling and for some reason just can't get the landing gear down so what is forgiveness So what I'm going to tell you tonight is from two sources. It's, it's the Dharma sources, which I love the best. And there's this uh, wonderful Buddhist psychologist at Stanford who has something called the Forgiveness Project. So it's a little bit of Western science and a lot of Dharma. So uh, his name is Dr. Luskin. What's his first name? Fred Luskin. Oh, who knows Fred? Somebody know him? I thought I heard a Fred out there. (laughs) So this is what Fred Luskin and all the great science says about what is forgiveness. Let's get it straight. Forgiveness is the peace you learn to feel when you allow those circling planes to land. Forgiveness is for us. It's not for the offender. 
Forgiveness is taking back our power. And um, so I want you to really have this land in your intuitive awareness, not in your right brain conceptual mind. Just let it land. Don't even try to remember anything. I'm happy to share my every single note from this talk with you, but just let it land in your intuitive awareness. Forgiveness is taking back your power or our power. Forgiveness is taking responsibility for our own emotions. Forgiveness is about our healing and not about the people who hurt us. It's a trainable skill, just like throwing a baseball. We can actually, just as we're improving our intuitive awareness and our mindfulness, we can build our capacity to forgive and to let go. Forgiveness helps us get control over our feelings. It improves our mental and our physical health. And to borrow a phrase from Dr. Phil, it helps us go from being a zero to a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, it allows us to rewrite the story of what happened to us, right? That, you know, we can be the bigger person. You know, it allows us to change who the victim is and who was the aggrieved person. It really does. Forgiveness is a choice, and we all can learn to forgive. And uh, so Dr. Leskin actually does this great intervention, and part of what he does, in addition to uh, forgiveness, uh, Buddhist practice, forgiveness meditation, is he does a little bit of this psychoeducation, and that was a little bit of it. And here's just a little bit more. Uh, it's important in order to forgive to understand what forgiveness is not. It's really clear, you know, that we have good boundaries and structure around forgiveness. Forgiveness is not condoning unkindness. Forgiveness is not forgetting that something painful happened. It's not excusing poor behavior. It's not denying or minimizing that we've been aggrieved and hurt at all. And it doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation with who hurt us. It doesn't mean that. I think before I get into uh, the Dharmic, uh, the Dharmic um, advice or trainings on how to deal with negative emotions and, you know, grief and grievances and anger, things of retaliation, they're definitely negative emotions. But some of this uh, list that Dr. Luskin has, which are pretty Dharmic in my view, are actually really good, so I'd like to read a few of them. Dr. Luskin has nine steps to forgiveness. His first step, and I love this step, I've been actually practicing this all day. (laughs) Know exactly how you feel about what happened and be able to articulate 
what about that situation is not okay? Then tell a couple of trusted people about your experience. I think that that's really good. You know, a lot of times we'll know that something happened and there was disrespect or someone's um, greed, hatred, and delusion was flying in our direction. (laughs) And, you know, we'll just say, oh my gosh, you know, we can't be bothered, right, to say anything. We can't be bothered. Or maybe it's not a situation that we feel comfortable in. Maybe we're real busy. But I just love that part of... Uh, being able to forgive is to really articulate what the offense was and how it wasn't okay. Because it allows us to bring some discernment of whether this was something really silly that we can let go of or if this was some type of repeated pattern that we need to, in the most gentlest, non-reactive way, really do something about. You know, so we can take some time to, as he says know exactly how you feel about what happened and be able to articulate what about the situation was not okay and then to tell a couple trusted people. It's not good to tell a lot of people because then you're just probably engaging in um, wrongful speech and, you know. (coughs) Oops, sorry. So the second um, of the nine steps is to make a commitment to ourselves to do what we need to do to feel better. Forgiveness is for us. It's not for anybody else. So if we need to just say, hey, I got to take the afternoon off here, or I need to go see a movie, or I need to go to the temple and sit a while. Going to the temple is not a good thing. (laughs) But to just think of some self-comforting, self-soothing thing, you know, to maybe visit a friend is an important step towards forgiveness. And again, reconciliation doesn't necessarily mean that we need to connect with another person. Um, This is a really good one. To recognize that uh, the hurt feelings from whatever happened actually exist right now in our mind and our heart and you know they really aren't associated with what happened two minutes ago two weeks ago or ten years ago in that sense you know we're taking back our power and taking back responsibility for our own emotions taking back that responsibility and then really excellent advice and I think we all know this this is advice about, you know, holding what is coming up for you in that mindfulness, not repressing it, but not acting on it. He advises that one of the steps to forgiveness is at the moment of being upset to practice, he calls it stress management, I call it mindfulness and compassion, tools to soothe our body's fight and flight mechanisms. You know, we do get really reactive And, you know, we don't want to act on, uh, you know, negative emotions. We really don't. So in that moment, to have that tool in our pocket, have mindfulness there, have compassion practice there, where we can hold it and step away from the situation and really act from our values and our wisdom rather than just being reactive. And this is my very favorite one. This is my very favorite one. 
Give up expecting things from other people or your life that they do not choose to give you. That's a really good one. Recognize the unenforceable rules you have for your health or how you or other people must behave. Remind yourself that you can hope for health, love, friendship, and prosperity and work hard to get them. However, you will suffer when you demand these things occur when you don't have the power to make them happen. This one really struck me. In 2004, you know, I got a divorce after being married for 17 years, and I was really angry. It was a pretty, you know, a lot of um, hidden stuff going on. And, you know, the moment I was able to start the forgiveness process is the moment I realized that my ex-husband wasn't responsible for my happiness. So I think just realizing that life is so unpredictable and we can create the conditions for these things to happen, but, you know, causes and conditions, conditionality, it's very complex. Here's another one. Put your energy into looking for another way to accomplish the goals that you were trying to accomplish with that person or that institution or whatever. Because of the next one, the best revenge is living well. <laughs> right? I mean, we don't, you know, all, you know, essentially it's about changing your strategy and still, you know, trying to accomplish that goal if it's a worthwhile goal. And then finally, just to know that actually forgiveness is a heroic act. It really is. And it's an act of mind training and heart training. It's an act of huge generosity. And, you know, that makes us the good person <laughs> in the story. I mean, not that, you know, we're keeping tally or anything, but I think in a, <laughs> in a situation where we're feeling like a victim, it can actually be quite helpful. In fact, you know, right before I came down here, about 20 minutes after 7, I have a dear sister who's a tribal judge on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she was driving from Lawrence, Kansas, back to the, be a judge tomorrow. And I said, tell me everything you know about forgiveness. <laughs> and she said, oh, let me think, let me think. You know, she's a sun dancer for many years and regular sweat lodge person. And she said, oh, I know, I know. She said, the, um, the word for um, forgiveness in Lakota and she said the word. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. That's actually the word for generosity. So I think there's... And then she said, it's this word. She said, oh, no, 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 that's compassion. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that, that was from Fred Luskin's perspective. And I want to say a little bit about what the Buddha said about forgiveness. He might not have talked about uh, forgiveness directly, but he did have a lot to say about negative emotions. I mean, that's what the whole Dharma is about. I mean, he was such a brilliant neuroscientist, psychologist, psychiatrist, or whatever. He was really smart. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, I was telling, yeah, I said that in the last, I think it was last night, that, you know, that whole neuroplasticity thing. He saw that 2,500 years ago. Um, and actually, now that I'm, you know, going to get down to the Buddhist perspective, I want to ask if there's anybody here from Thailand or Burma, or Thailand or Burmese Americans, from Burma, oh my gosh, big bow to you, because, you know, that's where this tradition comes from, Sayada Upandita Mahasi Sayada. You know, that's some of our deepest teachers, and I just bow to you. Thank you for being generous and sharing. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, um, so the first way that, you know, we can take a Buddhist perspective on forgiveness is through having an insight, realizing that, um, you know, we can train our mind through Barmi Vihara practice and through other things to kind of override the, um, you know, the negative emotions that we have. But the best way, and actually the only permanent way to, um, to actually uproot, uproot aversive reactions or negative emotions is actually through insight. It's through us having insight. And, you know, again, insight is... Um, a deep, verified knowledge of our intuitive awareness. And I'm sure many of you have felt that. You know what that is. You know, we um, learn all of these theoretical things, and it's almost like we can prime our intuitive awareness to see that. In fact, it sometimes helps us to look in that direction, but what we're talking about here is a really a much deeper understanding that changes us really fundamentally. So um, from the insight perspective or wisdom perspective, uh, you know, we ta- in the small groups we talked about some of the most fundamental um, teachings of the Buddha, and that's about the three characteristics of existence, the three characteristics of reality. And I know some of you are new to this way, so um, I'll explain them a little bit. So, um, and... After a while, I'm going to start talking about happiness. (laughs) But um, Buddhists, you know, the Buddha um, and, you know, many enlightened people, women and men since him, have understood that that, um, our suffering is predominantly due to the fact that we can't see reality clearly. You know, that our minds are really obstructed by greed, hatred, and delusion. And, you know, we're not living according to nature. It would be like if, you know, if eagles wanted to swim and fish wanted to fly, and that made them really unhappy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing of why we, of why we are suffering so much. Uh, because one of the insights, so applied to forgiveness... You know, we would understand that all, you know, this is one of the fundamental realities that the Buddha taught, is that all conditioned experience is unsatisfactory. So any relationships that we have with anyone, for for us not to expect that there are, you know, to expect them to go really well, to expect to have lasting happiness, you know, is really just expecting something that they cannot provide us. (laughs) 
you know, I like to give the example of this, of remember the very best experience you've ever had in your whole life. You know, I mean, whether it was a meditative experience or otherwise, um, you know, just your happiest day. Maybe it was the day you got your degree from Harvard or you married your longtime love partner or, you know, you made a million dollars in the stock market, you know, if, it, if you like those kind of things. <laughs> so what usually happens at that time is that, you know, you'll be just basking in that sense of satisfaction and that s- sense of happiness. And then the thought will arise, I hope it's like this tomorrow. <laughs> Which means what? There is still wanting in that moment. It's not a complete moment. There's still something missing. So that is the first uh, noble, well, that's the first characteristic that the Buddha taught. And it's actually also the first noble truth is that there is just any conditioned thing is unsatisfactory. You know, we can get pleasure from it and it's not wrong to get pleasure from it. Absolutely not. Um, I think one of the Zen Roshi said, um, renunciation is not is not uh, foregoing nice things. It's realizing that they go away and they're and you know they're not permanent. So it's not bad to enjoy any of these things, but the um, you know the rub is the place where we suffer is when we expect them to be to offer us more satisfaction and more lasting happiness than they can. And that's true of any situation with anyone who we might have issues of forgiveness with. So that's the first one is that there is dukkha in that. There is dukkha in everything. I know, it's kind of (laughs) sad. And then the second characteristic of existence, the second uh, piece of reality that we don't live... um, we don't live knowing is that everything is always changing. Everything is always changing. I mean, probably a lot of the places that we have cause for forgiveness are maybe relationships that have changed. You know, people that we have trusted that maybe betrayed us. Or people that trusted us that we betrayed. You know, that's one place where Um, for us to expect that things are going to remain the same, you know, that's not living according to the reality of existence. So that's the second condition related to aversive reactions that we need insight into. Once we have insight into these, the tug of the suffering of it actually goes away. It doesn't go away, but it gets lessened. And then the third characteristic of existence, there's three of them. The first one, again, is that there's dukkha in everything. The second one is that things are impermanent. And then the third one is that there is so many causes and conditions, so many different things that went into play to create that moment of slight, of hurt, of um, transgression that, you know, it's not personal. It's just too complicated um, 
you know, it's not like if we believed in a higher power that the p- higher power had a card in heaven that said, on this day you are going to get betrayed. You know, there's no inherent existence. There is no substance in what happened because it is so conditional. You know, um, the metaphor that I used in one of the um, small group discussions was of a huge sky. And tomorrow I'll actually be doing some um, um, spacious awareness instructions, how to rest in spacious awareness during meditation. But all of these conditions are like, what, what we really are is the spacious awareness. That's all the same for all of us. We have this spacious awareness. And all of these conditions, these thoughts and emotions, they're like weather patterns, like little storms that, because of multiple causes and conditions, come into the field of awareness and they play out their lifespan and then they dissolve. That's how they all are. That's how they all are. And when we know that, when we know that, when we can rest in spacious awareness and have the confidence and the groundedness of that space, you know, we can easily hold the storms that pass through without a lot of, um, you know, teeth gnashing and hair pulling. You know, there's a lot more ability to just surrender to reality, surrender to the physics of it. So that's the first way that is a Buddhist method for dealing with adverse uh, reactions is to keep with the practice. And, you know, um, there's this one, I think I've already said this, you know, I'm like one of those people who follows the rock star monks, right? (laughs) You know, the rock star monks. But anyway, um, there's this really one monk that everybody loves right now. His name is Anil Yu, and I think I've said this. You know, someone asked him what his practice is, and he said, you know, when I'm not in intensive retreat, I just do metta all the time because it's really excellent to have a benevolence to the world. And he said, but when I'm doing intensive practice, I just look for the three characteristics. So when he's sitting and doing this mindfulness, he's looking for these three things. He's looking for impermanence. He's looking for... um, the dissatisfaction, and he is looking for no self. And some of you have actually come into the um, come into the um, small group exercises having little glimpses of anatta. It's really beautiful. So that's the first one: is to really cultivate insight. The second one, and you know, many of you I know are not Buddhists. But I want to say that the second one is actually a few of the path factors. It's called sila or ethical conduct. And the path is divided up into, you know, this is an eightfold path that we do. What we're doing here, we're probably practicing a lot of them, but mainly we're practicing um, right mindfulness and right concentration like bhavana, you know, like meditation. But there's another um, set of path factors about um, sila, which is ethical conduct. And how that applies to, um, to forgiveness is, you know, we could continue to have the bone to pick. We could pick that bone. And we could, um, 
you know, engage in the, engage in a lot of unskillful activity, we could pick that bone, we could grind that axe, we could, you know, knock that chip off that shoulder, and, you know, we could engage in real and wholesome behavior in response to feeling, um, and that's what happens, you know, we get so angry. We probably vacillate between huge outrage and anger and feelings of victimhood and helplessness. You know, we really go back and forth. And, if, and from um, a Buddhist perspective, you know exactly what you're going to do. You are not going to engage with that. You are not going to... I mean, if there's a way for you to, um, you know, right or wrong or protect other people from getting hurt, you absolutely do that. You know, wrathful compassion is a huge part of our practice, but just in order to get back at someone, you know, that's a really important part of our path. And we've decided that, you know, that's not serving us. So, you know, we engage in sila and um, in non-harming, right speech and right action, ethics. Uh, you know, we engage in right speech. You know, that's why we do mindfulness in the moment to reduce the reactivity or not act from it. And we'll be tomorrow, unfortunately, when we're breaking silence, we'll talk about right speech, which includes a few elements. I really love the Buddhist model of right speech. It includes um, uh, wise intention, that your intention for speaking has some substance to it. It has to be true. But even, I mean, it can be true, but in addition to being true, it has to be useful. Right? I mean, there's a lot of things that we could say that would be true that are totally useless. <laughs> Isn't that true? It's true. It has to be true. It has to be um, useful. It can't, it should not be harsh. Another really excellent element of this is, is that it should be timely. You know, you can find the right time to say something and the wrong time to say something. It really makes you bring some mindfulness to speaking. It's really an excellent practice. There's actually whole retreats that you could do on uh, insight dialogue about dialogue as a practice. It's really excellent practice. And then um, finally, what we can do, I'm sure there's other ways, but the other one that I want to mention is practicing the Brahma Viharas. It really allows us much more space. I think it was um, Larry that talked about giving more space to negative emotions. You know, a bull in a little box is a lot more destructive than a bull in a huge, in a huge field. So um, what we do is we cultivate compassion and kindness and to try to override some of those negative emotions. And here's a good quote. On not elevating oneself. One of the worst kinds of elevation of the self is playing the victim. There are times when we actually are victims, when actual blame is appropriate. But to take on the identity of a victim and be stuck blaming is something else. Surprisingly, it is actually a subtle form of elevation. I'm not responsible, you are. This is giving up all freedom. 
I think the reason that remarkable stories of forgiveness take our breath away is that we instantly feel the liberation and the lifting of boundaries, the end of separation of inside and outside. So in addition to, um, you know, this talk was supposed to be about forgiveness and happiness. And I have 15 minutes to talk about happiness. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to talk a little bit about what the Buddha knew and what now science is catching up on with him, about what we know about... (laughs) They call me a devotional type, I guess. (laughs) Uh, About the truth of negative and positive emotions in our brain. I don't know if you guys have heard this. This is really interesting stuff. Because, you know, we are part of nature and because, you know, for most of our our existence as human beings, we've been in much less... Well, actually, I'm sure that our environments are still pretty unsafe given climate change and everything. Um, but because of that, we are hardwired to totally remember the negative things that happen in a day and totally skip over the positive things that happen in a day. We are hardwired, like neurologically, to have that be how our minds work. So you could think about everything, you know, just take a second to think about what happened to you today. And, you know, how many of the VVs, we talked about the VVs in, the, in one of our groups, the Vipassana Vendettas. <laughs> yeah, there's two things that you have when you're in, in silent retreat. You, you could get, you know, in order for your mind to just make up stuff because you can't watch television or read, <laughs> we make up these stories in our mind, usually in response to a neutral Veda. Now we start spinning these stories And we have two things, VRs and VVs. VRs are Vipassana romances. (laughs) So, you know, those people in the room that you have kind of a crush on and you think, I'm going to talk to them when we break silence. (laughs) You're laughing because you have one, right? (laughs) Or VVs, the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, something about some other yogi is just bugging you. (laughs) And whenever you see them in the hall, oh, you're just, (laughs) I do not like the way they peel the banana. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so the point I was trying to make is that our brain is hardwired to remember the negative experiences and not remember the positive ones. So that's why mindfulness is really excellent to help us um, incline our mind towards happiness. And that's what we're doing. We're inclining our mind towards happiness. And mindfulness helps us do that. And, you know, one of the um, recommendations is to savor savor the pleasant or the, the wholesome pleasant when sweet things happen, you know. When someone gives you half of their, you know, the last banana cuts it in half and gives you the half of it. You know, when there's enough raisins for the oatmeal. (laughs) Or, you know, when there's peaches there. 
right? Just the little things that, you know, we could get a, an, another little hit of joy from if we just savored that, that um, wholesome gift in the moment. So that's one way that our mindfulness can help incline our mind towards happiness. Um, I just wanted to give you one more tip about science. Um, all of the science of happiness, and you know, now there's quite a bit of positive psychology science. There's journals called the Journal of Happiness. And um, you know, there's a review article actually written in 2013. It's called A Formula for Happiness. And science says that happiness, that three things bring happiness. This is according to science. One is genetics. You know, some people are just a little bit more prone to happiness genetically than others. They just have maybe a happy personality trait, right? And don't get me started about epigenetics and people of color because, you know, we, you know, I think historically some of our happiness has been taken away because of the epigenetic expression of um, oppression, in our bodies. And I'll be posting some links on the board for you guys to take a look at that stuff after, after. The second big thing, so there's genetics and the second big thing is interesting. Big life events make us happy. So for me, it, li- it would be like going on a three-month retreat would make me so happy. So maybe it's graduating from college, getting married, some big life event. But it's interesting about big life events. How long do you think that happiness lasts from big life events? Like two months. (laughs) Like between two and four months is all the happiness that you get out of those things. So you can, you know, work and work and work and work to get that college degree and pay a lot of money and it'll probably be worth about four months of happiness. And then the third thing, according to science, that makes us happy. Does that seem unfair? <laughs> and then the third thing, according to science, that makes us happy is our choices. It's the choices that we make about how we live our life. And science shows that, you know, once you hit middle class income, and I think uh, Dara or Larry or um, Booker talked about this, about once you hit middle class um, income, there's not a lot of other happiness to be gained by amassing a lot of money. You know, there isn't a lot of additional happiness. In fact, for many people, it's a huge burden and really causes a lot of greed, hatred, and delusion. And your family members and people who are your friends, it can... You know, there's stories about people who won the lottery that it ruined their life. It's so interesting. There's a fair amount of stories about people who won the lottery and it uh, ruined their life. And um, contrarily, there's a fair amount of stories about people who got AIDS and it was the best thing that ever happened to them. It's really interesting that it's not really outward situations that determine that. So other... um, Science tells us, too, that other things that we do make us happy. It has, you know, gathered evidence of what the Buddha taught was that service to others makes us happy. That not having a really 
tight sense of who we are that needs to be validated by every single person that we run into in our life makes us happy. To be just a little bit looser about that makes us a lot happier in life. So um, I have a couple, um, a couple um, notes here about the difference between Buddhist happiness and Western happiness. And there's a few that I'd like to share because I think they're really beautiful. So of course we know that um, in the West here, happiness is equated with pleasure. You know, it's equated with sex and drugs and rock and roll and... You know, just pleasure. But in a Buddhist perspective, it's not really associated with pleasure at all. You know, in a Buddhist perspective, the main um, barrier to happiness, to genuine happiness, is the suffering resulting from craving and aversion. And um, I want to read a little bit about what the kind of craving it is that we are um, conditioned to. Um... Another um, tenet of Buddhist happiness is that it can't be found outside. You know, it really is about training the heart and the mind and coming to know reality. You know, if we, if our happiness is contingent on this paper floating up in the air when it's against physics, we're going to be unhappy. But, you know, so it really is contingent on us being right with reality and how that is. I mean, that's what happiness is based on. Um... You know, one other um, point of Buddhist happiness that I want to talk about, even though there's a lot more here, is that happiness understood in the Buddhist way is not necessarily incompatible with suffering, sadness, and tragedy. So you can actually have suffering, sadness, and tragedy and actually also have a lot of happiness in your life. That's interesting. So I could either end by reading um, a happiness um, passage from the Dhammapada or I could lead a brief forgiveness meditation. How about a forgiveness meditation? Okay, let's just sit in our seats. (laughs) Are you laughing because of course you're already sitting in your seat? Okay, this is a forgiveness meditation that I downloaded from actually, I don't know if he's a dear friend of yours, Larry, but he's a dear friend of mine. It was actually Eric Kolvig. Is he a dear friend of yours? He's my Dharma root teacher. Oh my gosh, yeah. He, you know, he and I, he and I lived together in New Mexico. I mean, like right next door to each other. He would always come over and sweat with us. Came to our sweat lodge all the time. Uh, Eric Kolvig was one of the founding... Um, Western teachers, uh, you know, he actually was the first one to do LGBTQ retreats. Is that true? Yeah, he's the first. He's the person that empowered me to teach. Yeah, he's really a wonderful man. He's actually retired right now. But this is his forgiveness practice. So he says, think of ways in which you have harmed yourself. First, we're going to do some forgiveness towards ourselves. Think of ways in which we have harmed ourselves. And, you know, we can, don't necessarily need to think of the worst thing that we've done to ourselves. But just think of a little thing right now. And I'm just going to say these phrases, and I want them to land in your intuitive awareness. Don't think about them. Just open your heart. Have a picture of your heart just wide open. And let these phrases land in your heart. 
I allow myself to be imperfect. I allow myself to make mistakes. I allow myself to be a learner, still learning life's lessons. I forgive myself. If I cannot forgive myself now, may I forgive myself sometime in the future. Now think of ways in which others have harmed us. Again, you know, don't pick the worst person that you have the most anger towards, but just maybe some little thing. Maybe you're VV here or something. And just get comfortable in your seat. Open your heart. And have these be like butterflies flying into your heart. Just as I I allow myself to be imperfect, so I allow you to be imperfect. I allow you also to make mistakes. I allow you to be learners, still learning life's lessons. I forgive you. And if I cannot forgive you now, may I forgive you sometime in the future. And now, thinking about someone that we have done harm to. Someone who we know that we have hurt through thought, word, or deed. Bring them to our heart. Just allow this to land in your heart with them. Please allow me to be imperfect. Please allow me to make mistakes. Please allow me to be a learner, still learning life's lessons. Please forgive me. And if you cannot forgive me now, please try to forgive me sometime in the future. Let's sit for a minute. May we all be forgiven. May we all offer forgiveness.